0: Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. We have an unbelievable guest on the line, Pete Warden. Pete, how are you?
1: Doing great, David.
0: Well, uh, I took a look at your uh, bio, your background, and everybody can look at that online. There's a few things that really stood out to me. One of them was that you're an astrophysicist, um, and that you're a retired brigadier uh, general in the military. So. Th- Uh, Those two items stood out. One in particular that was extremely impressive to me is that you went to Syracuse University, which is also my alma mater, uh, and you went to the public policy school. And the last piece that that I think people should know is that you ran the NASA Ames Research Center in Moffett Field. So you've been involved in this space industry for an incredibly long time. So, extremely impressive background. Anybody wants to look, you can look at it on Wikipedia, and it's on our website. So, we've uh, discussed and come up with a title for this program, which is Our Expanse into the Cosmos. Can you give me the full few bullet points we're going to be covering over this uh, podcast?
1: Sure. The, uh, uh, really, I want to start with the discussion of, of kind of a motivation of, uh, talk a little bit about you know, potential rationale for expansion of the universe, uh, then I want to talk about our solar system uh, and then I'm going to talk about the nearby stars, which I think is exciting uh, and then we'll going to talk a little bit about interstellar travel, uh, which has always been a a love of mine and then I'm going to kind of close the discussion with uh, uh, alien intelligence and what does that have to do with all of this and uh, uh, I think those are those five five points uh, Probably should cover most of our time.
0: Okay. Well, actually, they sound extremely exciting. So let's start with the first one. Uh, motivation uh, about the potential. I mean, what? what do, where do you want to go with this?
1: Well, I think the, the the key thing is that you know most of us live our lives uh, uh, with a kind of a view that we live in a, a static uh, universe. That uh, you know, despite the changes that occur, we sort of uh, throughout our lives Look at, well, the Earth is here It's always going to be here And maybe there's some some changes But uh, that they're not That significant or they're solvable uh, I think that that You know, as especially as an astrophysicist That uh, What's really impressive about the universe Is it's dynamic uh, And it's dynamic at, at all sorts of, of Time scales and, and spatial scales uh, So that Life on Earth, although it's uh, existed for 3 billion years, uh, uh, really sophisticated life is probably less than a billion, and and intelligent life is a few million at most. Uh, So that's a pretty dynamic situation. So the question really is that uh, uh, how long is that going to last? And uh, there's a lot of things that, that, that can end intelligent life or end all life on Earth. Uh, and of course, the the one that's in discussion most recently is is stuff that we do that we do as, as humans. That, uh, n- nuclear weapons, of course, were, were, were a big thing, but uh, I think still are. But uh, there's other things that you know, people said we could might create, you know, some horde machines that would do us in. We could create, uh, you know, uh, viruses that would kill us. Uh, so that's a, kind of a first category. Uh, I'm probably personally more interested in stuff that the universe can do to us, and and probably the the initial one that most people might be a little familiar with is the the idea that asteroids uh, strike the Earth. uh, I mean, the best known one is 65 million years ago, or asteroids sort of ended the age of the dinosaurs, or several asteroids, it's still an open question. Uh, We could clearly get hit by another one, Uh, you know, the, the asteroid that happened 65 million years ago probably killed 90 95 percent of the species on Earth. Uh, so, so these are all things that could happen on the solar system. Other things, you know, the, the sun could do some sort of burp, which stars do on occasion. Uh, so this is all interesting set of of disasters. Uh, but so, so before that, we
0: get to the, before we get to the disasters, because I don't want it to get too far back. I never thought of it in this way and, and you're bringing it up so my mind is racing you talk about the uh, the dynamic nature of space at time scale and spatial scales what be more specific what does a time scale and a spatial scale mean to someone like you?
1: Well I think that uh, you know time scales uh, uh, there's a a lot of things that can happen on time scales over a few years I and mean, I mentioned asteroid impacts that's certainly something that that uh, you know we haven't mapped very many of the large asteroids that can threaten us uh, you know one could come out of nowhere and we wouldn't see it you know until maybe at best a few years before uh, it hit so that's a time scale it's a relatively short time scale uh, of course the you know bursts to our, our star of the Sun and we see lots of activity at fairly low level uh, but there are things in the universe that are known as Nova or stars explode. Uh, we think we understand our sun is not a likely star to do that, but we're not sure. Uh, those are things that, that could happen at hundreds thousands of of years or millions of years. Uh, so these are all sort of cosmic disasters. There are others uh, that, that people are beginning to look at. Uh, for example, if a nearby star went supernova and this is a, you know, in our galaxy, every few hundred years, a, a, a large star explodes in a huge manner. In fact, it outshines the entire galaxy. If one of these happened nearby, uh, it, it would scour the, the growth of life, potentially. Or, um, you know, these are things huh. that probably don't happen very often, but you know, there are certainly possibilities.
0: You know, I and, I never th- I never thought about a a supernova happening and what that impact would be to Earth. Uh,
1: well, and that's yeah, one that you know now. None of the nearest stars look like the type that might go supernova, but there are stars that that are near enough that could go supernova sometime in the next few million years. Uh, the nearest star that could go supernova, you know, in our lifetime or in the next ten thousand years, is the bright star Betelgeuse. Which is uh, uh, it's, it's in the constellation of Orion. you can see a bright red star. That's Betelgeuse. That's one that we now believe will go supernova. You know, timescales it might be tens or a hundred thousand years, but that means it could be tomorrow. That one is probably not close enough to to scuttle the planet of, of life, but it can cause a lot of problems.
0: Huh. No, I just—it's funny. I never thought of it, which is. an interesting I guess that's why we're on the line so I I stopped you in terms of moving forward internet you you had more or less spoken about uh, it sounds like disasters more than you did possibilities when you're talking about motivation
1: exactly I think our the the key thing is that this is a a baseline motivation that uh, that says that well what what can we do about it now I mean obviously you're not going to stop a star from going supernova Maybe in the future you could stop an asteroid from hitting the Earth. That's a, another interesting question. Uh, but I think the the, the key motivation this, that comes out of this is we like to, uh, just like you do with, uh, you know, uh, with your computer, you want you like a backup. And uh, uh, so the question is: So wh- what does a backup of life on Earth look like? And uh, uh, I think this is an increasing motivation for a lot of people that says we ought to look for are there other places that, that we could back up life on Earth and uh, this really gets us to the uh, to looking at our solar system the uh, uh, of course the nearest location is the moon and it uh, historically when we knew about the moon it was not a very you know positive positive place although it's interesting in the last decade or so we've now discovered that the moon might actually be more promising than we thought. Uh, For example, we found water at the poles of the moon, and recently there are people that believe underneath the surface there are substantial quantities of water, and water is really probably the the most fundamental uh, requirement if you're going to have an Earth-type life. Uh, Other things are, of course, organic molecules, things that, that are based on carbon and carbon compounds. Uh, we also find those at the poles of the moon, and there may be other uh, sources as well. So the moon is the is the first place to look. The second place to look, uh, the the most Earth-like planet is Mars. And Mars clearly has large quantities of water, although it seems to be locked in ice. Uh, but there's we're now seeing that there's even places where water seems to occasionally flow on the surface of Mars. Uh, so Mars actually is a, a very promising place, that, and there's a lot of people that say that, well, for, with suitable technology and hard work, uh, you might be able to make Mars into uh, to uh, another Earth. This is called terraforming. And uh, it, when it first came up maybe you know, 50 years ago, it was considered, well, this is way beyond any technology that, uh, that, that we can imagine, but now we can start to imagine a bunch of very interesting technologies that, that in, I'll say, short order—short order, maybe thousands of years—that uh, you could make Mars livable, uh, and there may be other places in the solar system. Uh, and My personal favorite is the biggest asteroid, which is named Ceres. Uh, it's you know not a huge planet, but it's uh, you know a thousand kilometers across. So in fact, the amount of surface area is, a, you know, a reasonable fraction of, of, uh, of the United States. So uh, the reason I like Ceres is it's further out in the solar system. It's far enough away from the, the sun, so it's, uh, the amount of surface radiation isn't uh, as bad as it might be on the moon. One of the problems on the moon is that, that you don't have an atmosphere that protects you from, from solar storms and so forth, but if you're far enough out in the solar system, they're, they're less bad. Uh, series is just recently NASA's missions have shown that, that there's a lot of water there. So so these are sort of the the uh, the places in the solar system. Uh, and I, I'll say that you know it appears to be a motivation for uh, a lot of a lot of people that, that are sort of visionary people like Elon Musk uh, and Jeff Bezos and other high net worth people. Is can we figure out some way to 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 establish, you know, an Earth backup and even opportunities for, for new settlement. Uh, of course, another concept is can you construct a uh, Earth-like environment, you know, giant space habitats where you actually, you know, build a uh, a huge spaceship, if you will, but it's big enough so it could be rotated and simulate. Gravity on earth
0: was that uh, was that interstellar was that one uh, interstellar uh, well, the uh,
1: there were yes exactly there were ideas I think that the person that really popularized these was in the 70s was uh, professor uh, Jerry O'Neill from uh, uh, Princeton University and really gave rise to a, uh, the, it was called the l5 society because one place you would put these are there's a, some places in the Earth Moon system that uh, were gravity of the Earth and the Moon balance, and, and the L5 point was considered one of the best ones. Uh, the, uh, so this is a, you know, there's a lot of very exciting uh, um, places and, and opportunities in the solar system, and I think this is going to be a, a really big deal uh, in this century of you know, beginning to back up, you know, not just humanity, but Earth life uh, uh, in our solar system. I might also add that uh, uh, it's not just the, the you know protection against negative things, but a very interesting uh, possibility is to begin to move heavy manufacturing off the Earth, so that you can preserve the Earth itself for kind of light industrial uh, activities. And this is the uh, there's the, increasing interest in in mining the asteroids, mining the Moon, uh, so that we begin to do heavy industry off the Earth. It's maybe the ultimate uh, ecology move. Uh, so I think this is this is really the exciting stuff uh, that's, that's, that's going to begin, and I think by the end of the century we will see maybe millions of people, uh, maybe tens of millions of people, uh, living off the Earth, uh, you know, on the Moon, on Mars, maybe on, on Ceres and other asteroids, and, and I think uh, as time goes on and these... Uh, you know, giant space colonies. And uh, uh, this will also help the Earth itself because, you know, as manufacturing uh, and resources are not just what you're finding on Earth. That's a huge uh, increase in capability.
0: This is is a personal question just because of the way you've been presenting the content. Given that you've talked about some of the negatives and a few of the positives, uh, where do you fall on the spectrum of the rationale for Going into space, are you more of a? Well, which direction do you fall? What's your main driver?
1: Well, I think it's it's you know fifty percent you know threats and fifty percent opportunity. Uh, maybe I'm slightly more on the opportunity side.
0: Okay. Uh, the because the reason I ask that is you have a, a very central figure in the space industry today Elon who is talking very much uh, about the fact that there this is a backup this is the to save the species and the million to in 40 to 100 years have a million people on Mars and uh, I don't see cows and, and giraffes and elephants and all those uh, animals being s- uh, saved the same way I don't know how they'll, that, the way they'd survive on those planets so the opportunity for making earth a better place the possibility of uh, off off um off planeting to mars or to the moon or in space to do manufacturing uh, heavy med- heavy metals or metals or or new molecular design for structures uh compounds that are created i i think that's a probably a near-term possibility that can make this earth a better place because we're not going to move eight billion people off of this planet so it's almost a dire uh future if you think that we're just saving the species
1: well and i think that's the the, the positive side of it is that it's not just the that um, you know there's a there's a threat and by the way i do think that eventually you could put giraffes and everything else I and mean, i talked about terraforming mars and you know, in a, in a millennium or two, you, you know, there may be another Earth. That, uh, but, but again, I think the positive thing for immediately for the next few generations is, that, is, the, is the opportunity, you know, that w- whenever you try to adjust a uh, a system, I mean, whether the system is, a you know, the environment in your house or uh, environment in a city or in a country, uh, it's really hard if you have to make everything kind of balance in a, in a small space. So uh, in your house, if everything has to balance without bringing anything in or taking anything out, it's very difficult. But if you can do a little bit of you know removing serious waste and uh, at the same time bringing a few vital things in, it becomes a lot easier. And I think that's really one of the key parts of the solution to our, our terrestrial environment. Okay.
0: So in terms of motivation, there's a a lot going on. We probably could talk for a whole hour on that. In terms of the solar system, you've you've touched on a few pieces and some of the larger components, uh, larger um, planets or asteroids. What else should we know about or what what should I know about uh, looking into space as not a space person? What should I know more about the solar system that would be useful?
1: Well, I think I'd like to turn to kind of my second point about other solar systems okay and uh, the uh, you know i mentioned some things that could happen that, that even if you back up humanity or that you are on mars and other places i mean there are disasters that are that would affect the whole solar system i mentioned things that happen to the sun you know there, there are things that could happen like a, a supernova so you need to get far enough away uh, the other the second really interesting thing that's happened in the last few decades and particularly in the last few years is we now understand that that virtually every star has a solar system, and uh, we're beginning to find, you know, thousands and probably soon millions of planets. Uh, we, we find that that stars like the sun, at least a quarter of them, seem to have a planet sort of the size of the Earth uh, in a region that where the conditions would be similar to the Earth in terms of temperature. Now we don't know whether wow. the, the conditions on the surface of these planets are like ours, but uh, But there's got to be the, something
0: out there like us. There's got to be right, something it, in the billions and billions and billions Well, of, that's the key
1: question. Uh, 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 and, and so, the, the, in fact, the very nearest star, which is known as Proxima Centauri, we already know it has a planet uh, the size of the Earth in what we call the habitable zone, which means that water could exist in the surface. Now, it happens to be that particular star that planet orbits is uh, is a very small star, it's much smaller than our Sun. It's called a red dwarf star, uh, and maybe 70% of the stars in the galaxy that are these kind of stars. But we now think every one of those, or almost every one of them, has a planet like the Earth around it. So yeah. we're seeing really a huge possibility of, you know, this is not going to happen in the next century or two, but in a few centuries, that, you know, that there's a possibility of finding things that are very much like the Earth, and uh, this, to me, is maybe one of the most exciting things in fact, I think will determine in the next decade or two, maybe sooner, uh, if uh, if some of these planets actually are Earths, if they, uh, they bear life, and there are, there are various technologies that are, that are maturing very rapidly that uh, I would predict within 10 years at the most, and maybe sooner. Uh, we will know whether there is an Earth around the mirror, one of the nearest stars that does life that has oh. conditions that are so. That's a very exciting thing.
0: More of a functional question. Uh, we've we found these uh, these planets circling around in the habit zone that you're talking about. How did we find them? Because I, I mean, I feel like as you were telling me this, I'm thinking about the person who found the atom. Oh my God! Look at it's there uh I, f- I at some point it was it just uh pop into the radar screen of people involved in the space industry saying we found it they're everywhere and it's like a gold mine of uh well, was, of opportunity
1: it, 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 the 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 search for extrasolar planets as they're called uh was sort of a dream i mean as a, of astronomers for a long time and and we just believed it was too hard to do and uh and uh, when I went to graduate school, you know, way last century in the 70s, it was sort of like, <laughs> well, in our lifetime, we'll never figure out. You know, the planets are so small; they're they're billions of times fainter than the stars they orbit. Uh, you know, the the turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere is so much you would never be able to to see these. But technology marches on, and people figured out some very clever ways. So in the 1990s, uh, several groups of astronomers. Uh, Said well, you know, we can use some new computer techniques to look at at the the motion of these stars, and it's called radial velocity. You, you measure the, the the spectral lines; these are the atoms, uh, the, the the absorption uh, features. What I mean by absorption features are some colors of light that certain atoms absorb in the in the in the atmosphere of the star, and you can take a spectrum uh, of the of the star, and you can measure very uh, precisely the the color of these of these absorption lines, and over you know time, you can see the the, the star moves a little bit. And uh, if you can measure that precisely enough, and by the way, that precisely enough is really small. It's like uh, you know the, the the speed of your car, maybe. So it's not you know not a huge change. <laughs> You're basically seeing the reflex motion. That if there's a planet orbiting a star, the star also, in a much smaller scale, orbits the planet. This is the sort of Kepler's planetary okay. motion laws, and uh, we got good enough. So in the 1990s, we found a couple uh, of these. Uh, uh, of these, and they were big planets. They were the size of Jupiter, which is maybe 100 times the size of the Earth. But this kept getting better and better. Uh, and then some people had some other really clever ideas, uh, In fact, some of them were at NASA Ames about 25, 30 years ago, and said, you know, there's another way to see if there's a planet there that, that uh, if we're lined up right and say the planet is it orbits the star, uh, goes in front of the star, it actually would cause a small decrease in light, so it's like a shadow. So just like yep. a, a solar eclipse. Although the but the, the the amount of the shadow is very small. It's a you know maybe you know twenty parts per million. Uh, but the technology got better and better, so that we were able to measure the light levels of stars to a few parts in a million. Uh, so about uh, ten years ago, uh, NASA launched a mission called Kepler, which was a mission that was developed at NASA Ames uh, that, that I had the privilege of running. And uh, we began to look at 100,000 stars like the Sun. We measured their light very precisely every half hour. Uh, and pretty soon we started to see planets everywhere. Uh, and we started to see planets the size of the Earth. And uh, so this is the first time Earth-sized planets were really detected in large numbers. Uh, and we, it's a statistical measurement. We were only looking at stars that happen to be lined up exactly right. We'll be able, that we don't see the indirect measurements. We'll be able to directly uh, be able to see the, the the dot of light that represents the planet itself, and then a few years later, we'll be able to measure its properties, and from this, say, okay, it uh, has an atmosphere. The atmosphere may have water and oxygen in it. We may see evidence of, of other chemicals that would indicate life, like chlorophyll. I mean, if you looked at the Earth, you would see evidence of the chlorophyll in in, uh, in plants. So
0: these are things that are that are that are happening very soon. Uh, of course, so, so just a, just a, a, a more uh, um, I know this is not a value question. It's just a question. Was it when when someone doing the research? You were at NASA Ames. You were part of this, and they said, "Look what we found." Was it jumping up in joy? i down for joy. Was it? I mean, what was the atmosphere when you first discovered? That out of these hundred thousand, there's a quarter of them that have this potential.
1: Well, it involved several bottles of good champagne, I'll tell you.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. So it was, it was a oh my god, we found it a moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, we sort of hoped we would, but I mean, it's it's like any science mission. I mean, you uh, experiment that you so you hope you'll find great answers, and but you know a lot of things fail, and uh, you know, or that that it's much harder than you think. In this case, we were gratified that. The, the, the people that, that thought of this concept were right. And I'll tell you that the idea first came up in the 1980s. Uh, the proposal was submitted to NASA starting in the 1990s, five times before it was accepted. Uh, the the principal investigator, a scientist named Bill Baruchi, uh, he's in his 70s now, but he's now become one of the most famous astronomers on the planet. You know, he could just as easily been an obscure, you know, He's a happy man, a happiest man, anyhow. But, but by being the guy that really stuck with this for decades, uh, that's what science is all about.
0: Cool, cool. I just, I can imagine you found something that's so unique, and or you've proved a hypothesis that people have asked for for centuries. And I think it's just a, a neat, need to be part of that history. Well, okay, so I, I did stop I think, you up. No, no, that's
1: fine. And I, and I think the, of course. The next big thing, and this is this is one that I'm spending a lot of my time on now, is that, okay, say we find some planets like the Earth around the nearest stars, and we even find evidence of life, uh, can we go there? Uh, can we, you know, send machines there, and actually can we send ourselves? Uh, that's the next big thing, and, and I would say until recently we thought, well, this is impossible with any technology we understand. but we're now beginning to find means that maybe in the middle of the century we can send small probes and maybe later bigger things. So that, I think, is the next big thing. And when I say expansion in cosmos, I think that, as I said, by the end of the century we'll be expanded into our solar system, but then the next thing, for the next century, for the 22nd century, I think there'll be, you know, expanding to the nearby stars. And it's, uh, uh, you know, of course, that's, clearly it's not for economics but that's the ultimate backup that you begin to expand at bigger and bigger distances it eventually enables you to expand far enough so that some cosmic accident uh, you, know, you know may get one planet but won't get to uh, everything
0: so that, that leads us obviously to the nearby stars
1: uh, exactly what... go ahead so, so I think the you know the the, the the expansion of the cosmos is a, a you know obviously a <clears throat> you know millennium and maybe hundreds of millennium long process, but uh, it's beginning now, and that's really the exciting thing.
0: I I'm, I go I'm laughing because I think of the Star Trek uh, movie episode where uh, we finally get into space travel because the warp drive has happened. And therefore, the Klingons see us, and that changes our possibilities of reaching into the cosmos. So, I, I, I'm, I'm not assuming that's part of our plan. <laughs> How do you look at this in terms of the well, nearby well, stars?
1: Right now, there doesn't appear to be any means of way to do warcraft, although I'll, I'll say there are certainly some very really speculative uh, uh, researchers that, that think there is. Uh, you know, they tend to violate laws well, of physics, which is usually a bad idea. Uh, it doesn't work But but again, there's a lot of physics we don't understand We don't know uh, So it's entirely possible in the decades ahead We'll find a way around the cosmic speed limit uh, But even if we don't I think that, that the technology Is, is maturing that, that uh, Certainly in the next few decades We can begin to send Tiny probes to the nearby stars And I you know, say tiny probes These are things that are huge ramps uh, But that technology is maturing very rapidly So it's uh, it's getting
0: pretty exciting. So what's the, I've learned about, I've heard about the laser technology and moving a sail, you know, accelerating to close to the speed of light. What are some of the, on the fringe of thinking that we could move at uh, to these other expansive nearby stars? What are some of the, some of the technologies you're envisioning?
1: Well, I think the, the the technology you mentioned that that you could you know it's sort of very really old technology. It's it's like a sailboat. You keep the the the, the fuel comes stays behind, and uh, or you get it from the environment. And and the idea of 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 having a cosmic sail and a very very powerful laser beam to push it. I think that's going to mature very rapidly in the next few decades. Uh, but there there are other technologies that uh, that seem to be possible uh probably the most likely one you know maybe later this century is is really controlled fusion and uh, now i'm i'm always hesitant to get too enthusiastic about fusion because you know i remember the old story or the old saw that says that uh, you know fusion is the energy energy of the future uh, always has been and always will be so uh you know it's uh, the you know, they, we, we thought we were just around the corner, of, you know, in the 1960s of controlled fusion, and we're still just around the corner from controlled fusion. So uh, I wouldn't put a lot of immediate promise, but the physics clearly works, that that you could build a, a fusion rocket and get fairly large payloads uh, to the nearest star. And the problem with lasers is that you can send a probe, but it you can't stop it at the other end. It just flies by and collects data. You know, whereas a, a fusion rocket could stop at the other side, so you know I'm optimistic that sometime, maybe in the middle of the century, will will have that, you know, the ability to build a fusion rocket under under control. The uh, <clears throat> now there's other more exotic things. I mean, to go back to the Star Trek stuff, the uh, you know the, even more energetic than fusion, maybe a hundred times more energetic, is uh, matter antimatter reactions. Which uh, aren't just science fiction and we can produce antimatter today, but in such tiny quantities that we're probably you know a uh, hundred trillion times you know too low in production of antimatter, so it's uh, that's not something that's going to happen soon, but that provides you with an ultimate energy source that that uh, you, know, you could potentially get to speeds that are you know 80 90 percent of the speed of light. With, of the spaceship so that's probably for the again for the next century or the centuries after uh, now there are other ideas that are more science fictiony that, that uh, there may be ways of getting energy from the, you know, the, the, the fabric of space itself uh, these seem to be pretty radical and there doesn't seem to be any immediate way to do it but you know i'm, I'm not going to say it's impossible
0: I also I don't know in, in my own head I'm saying capabilities of going jumping from planet to planet to planet or finding planets where we could have an energy source that we would be able to pick up on almost as if we had charted a series of gas stations through the universe uh, Has is that a type of uh, a philosophy or thought that's going through people's minds.
1: Well, I think not yet. I mean, well, obviously it has. I mean, this does get in the realm of good science fiction, like we just, what I call hard science fiction, that, that you know a lot of things are possible in the, in the centuries ahead. But yeah, you know, wh- one of my uh, favorite science fiction authors, and actually somebody I got to know pretty well personally, was uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, died a few years ago, but uh, uh, he, he he had a uh, uh, I probably won't quote him exactly right, but he said that uh, a uh, any suitably advanced technology is uh, indistinguishable from magic. And uh, so, uh, and, and he wrote, you know, very very good hard science fiction about uh, you know, ways both near term and far term that, that you might be able to travel, uh, you know, interstellar distances. So, you know, I think that's uh, you know, I, I'm an optimist, and I and I you think
0: this stuff may happen you know in having done what I do for a living and being as active as I have around the world you you definitely sound like an optimist the the words that you use the, the thoughts that you have you have to believe that there will be a tomorrow and in today's times and I'm dating this podcast the, there are many people who have more of a doom and gloom approach to the world as compared to uh, an optimistic viewpoint so are there any specific stars uh, nearby or places that we're truly mapping and saying this would be our next our next step be uh, as part of the plans that you've seen
1: well a very exciting star system actually is the nearest star system I mean in fact it's statistically a little unlikely that the nearest star system would actually have a star like the sun it turns out the nearest star system has two stars like the sun that's the alpha centauri system uh the the stars orbit each other Uh, they take about 70 years to orbit each other but it's entirely possible that each of them could have an earth so one of the things that's going on now is some really intensive studies to see if we can find if there is an earth around these two stars. Now they, they have a there's a third star in the system I mentioned earlier is Proxima Centauri, which is a small star. It's actually quite far away from the other two. I mean its orbit takes ten thousand years or so to go around the other two stars. But it's a uh, it's kind of exciting that the that the two nearest stars are actually kinda of like the sun. And when we do physics studies, you know, which we can on you know making models of how the star's interior works. From everything we know, this is a star system that's actually slightly older than the uh, than the Earth and this uh, our sun, and it uh, says, okay, maybe this is someplace that's uh, an elder uh, solar system. So it's kind of interesting to to look at it. So uh, I'm I'm very excited about it. Uh, S- so just
0: if you can help me with just a visual, and I know that we're on a, on an audio, but a visual component, because I'm now picturing these two suns. Kind of, I'm actually doing it with my hands and you can't see that They're, they're circling around they're, they're moving around each other Almost like they're dancing And then around them, around each one of them There are planets Or around the entire The two of them There are planets, or both
1: Well, it, we think it's more likely that, that around each of them There will be some planets I mean, they can't be too far out But they could each have a, a planet Like the Earth uh, you know, around them, uh, or a few planets like the, the Earth or like the inner planets in our solar system, we uh, would there, we know from the data we've obtained they don't have planets like the size of Jupiter around them. Uh, in fact, if you put them in our solar system, uh, the one of them where the Sun is, the other one would be kind of somewhere about the orbit of Saturn. Uh, and of course, in our own solar system, we find that the planets, the big planets, all have their own, you know, little planets, which are called moons. Right. So it's likely that both of these stars would have planet-sized objects uh, orbiting them uh, closer in. And so we're really just now have the technology to look for that. So that's an exciting, exciting
0: project. I'm, I'm actually, I wonder, this is just a wonder, if there are any planets that circle both of them in a very, very large loop, because of the gravitational pull.
1: Well, in fact, we know that the third star does circle both of them uh, very Oh, far out, okay. And, and that's Proxima Centauri. Uh, in this fact, it's you know some ten thousand times further away than the Earth is from the Sun. So it's a. In, in fact, it was just recently that it's kind of been proven that it's actually orbiting the other two. Uh, there are probably other things orbiting the other two as well that are way far out. Uh, you know. In our own sun, we have a a cloud of objects uh, like Pluto beyond Pluto. That uh, in a, even further out, we believe there's a a cloud of of objects that could even have planets, that are pretty big. They're called the Oort cloud, and it's pretty clear that, that the Alpha Centauri system probably has similar things. In fact, they kind of probably overlap. Uh, so it's you know. Space is not empty.
0: It's pretty exciting. I, I my mind is racing to the, not because I, I have a science background, but just my mind is racing up to the gravitational pull that these suns must have to have a third sun circling that, uh, and, and to keep that within orbit, even though it's ten thousand years to circle. I mean, or ten thousand, um, the distance is ten thousand times greater. That's still amazing. That that's, and we have no. Humans don't have any concept of how big that is in terms of size. So
1: no, and in fact, there are some people that, and there's even some evidence that the our sun itself may have a distant companion that's too faint for us to see, but that that may come close to the Earth every hundred thousand years or so. Uh, this has always been referred to as Nemesis because it may be in a funny orbit, so it gets close enough to the sun every few hundred thousand years. It can cause some Excitement! Like this is another one of the cosmic disasters that could occur. Uh, you know, so it, there's a lot we don't know about even our nearby solar neighborhood. Uh, but I think the interesting thing to me is is really the third topic is uh, well, if there could be life here. What about intelligence? Okay. And uh, you know, this is this has been a really exciting question. I mean, you know, obviously if you read science fiction. You know some of these other concepts begin to get into the most exciting science fiction is we find aliens, and uh, right. <laughs> uh, of course, I'll I'll say that you know there's a lot of people who believe the aliens are among us. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know in fact, I had some of my staff at NASA Ames that thought that. Uh, I'm not sure whether you know too many bottles of celebratory champagne had something to do with it or not. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, but I mean I, I you know I. I certainly don't know of any evidence uh, that, that that we have alien visitations. Uh, you know, it's, that doesn't mean there isn't any, but I'm pretty sure there isn't. Uh, but the a, a real scientific search for aliens began in the 1960s. Uh, there was a very famous uh, astronomer, Frank Drake. Uh, uh, in fact, one of his young proteges was Carl Sagan, and. Uh, uh, they, in the 1960s, started to, be, to look for, you know, can we find any evidence of, of aliens? And the first idea was, well, we communicate over a long distance with radio. Uh, maybe aliens will communicate over a long distance with radio. Maybe they're even trying to signal us. Uh, so a program began in the 1960s called The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And... Uh, was it has not been funded very well. I mean, it was, you know, several times uh, in the United States, for example, the NASA tried to to fund efforts to do it, and it, after a while, the Congress said, well, "This is silly." You know, why should we look for little green men? Uh, but the, there has been a growing interest in the last few decades of, of privately funded efforts. Uh, indeed, started in the 1990s, uh, Paul Allen, uh, co-founder of Microsoft. Uh, uh, funded a rather substantial uh, effort called the Allen Telescope Array. Uh, recently, uh, my own sponsor, uh, uh, Yuri Milner, uh, uh, committed a hundred million U.S. dollars to to, to renewing the search. Uh, in fact, we we're trying to look at the ne- the million nearest stars uh, to see if we can see any signals. Uh, and the, we've also looked at well, increasingly, you know, we're not using just radio waves to communicate or to send data we're using optical signal lasers and and, uh, and maybe other things so uh, the interesting thing to me is that we really haven't looked very hard until recently Uh, and so I'm you know who knows Uh, the uh, one of the big questions of course is that if it's possible for for us to maybe travel between the stars uh, you know and there are places even Alpha Centauri, that is older than the Earth uh, uh, by a bit, and uh, probably even older stars, maybe two or three times as old as the, as the Sun. And if if intelligence arises and travels between stars, then uh, uh, you know the, the the galaxy should be teeming with life. And and uh, the question is, well, if, if intelligent life is everywhere, how come it's not here uh, from elsewhere? And that that's called the Fermi Paradox, and Nico Fermi first in the 1950s, sort of, uh, uh, voiced it. So this is one of the great mysteries is that, uh, um, you know, maybe intelligence isn't very common or maybe, uh, intelligence is a bad idea, which I think goes back to the value of, 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 us beginning to expand. Uh, you know, it's really one of the great mysteries. I mean, one of the possibilities is that intelligence destroys itself or it, uh, we download ourselves in machines or something. So this is a way to kind of begin to explore our future. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I don't know whether, you know, I think it's important we continue this search and as we learn more and better technology to, to look for it. But it's uh, it, it's really the, 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 the third three key question. I think the first one is, you know, do we have a future in our solar system and beyond? The second key question is uh, can we travel between the stars? And the third one is uh, is there intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? Uh, and of course, a corollary question is say we found one, you know, can we or should we even bother try or try to communicate with uh, the alien intelligence? And I'll tell you, that's a very emotional issue with a lot of scientists. In what way? Well, I think there's a there's, there are some scientists that think that, well, we, we should try to send out signals now that, that we would say, we're here, talk to us. There are others, uh, for example, Stephen Hawking, who says, well, you know, it's kind of a bad idea to, to call attention to yourself, and they sort of cite human history that says that whenever less advanced uh, cultures... Societies, are, yeah. Yeah, interact with more advanced it usually is to the not to the benefit of the less advanced society so you know maybe we should if, if they're not looking for us maybe we shouldn't call attention to ourselves uh, so these are these are interesting and I think very important philosophical questions um, that that are very much open I mean I, and I'm not sure what my answer is uh, I think it's important to let's see if we can find a signal before we and then we'll argue about whether we should try to communicate with it also
0: find out about how far away it is. Uh, yeah, so Jim uh, right. <clears throat> Jim Newman, which I, I know you know Jim, hold on. Jim Newman and I were having a conversation <clears throat> and he described to me one of the challenges with all of these searches is just the time scale and the time differential that <clears throat> in order for us to find <clears throat> excuse me, have, find life on a another planet or someone looking at us they might have had to send that radio wave or that that um, beacon or whatever tens of thousands of years ago or millions of years ago to this little rock circling this sun uh in order for them to find us so the fact is if they looked at us three million years ago they wouldn't have seen anything on the planet so how when you're thinking about searching does that come into play that the we're hitting our radio waves are hitting something that we might not hear about for another few million years
1: well i think this is one of the reasons that that i'm very interested in the million nearest stars which is that's about a thousand light years away is that if you look at the earth and say well when would you first identify that there was some you know Technological civilization here. and I mean, it's arguable, but the earliest time was probably several thousand years ago. In particular, the Romans uh, cut down all the trees in Spain to smelt silver and produced a lot of industrial pollutants for the first time. Uh, so maybe aliens watching us, you know, you know, the signal took a thousand years to get out. They said, "Okay, there's something going on on that planet." Uh, so well, we, maybe we got to start sending a beacon towards them. Okay. Uh, so it's it's important to kind of look for somebody, kind of signals within the nearest million stars, and that's generally people that study. They say well, that's the minimum thing we need to do, and we just now have the technology to really search the million stars for, for signals. Uh,
0: what would you What would you do if you did find that there's, uh, and I'm assuming we're talking intelligent life that someone that can something or some entity that can communicate back with us.
1: Well, if we found a beacon that that's, that's within a thousand light years, you know, we have to figure out where it is. But let's assume it's six hundred light years away. Uh, the you know that that meant that twelve hundred years ago they figured out there was the possibility of of intelligence here, and they sent a signal that they keep sending. Uh, you know, I think that begins. First of all, we have to unpack the signal. What's in it? And uh, you know the uh, does the signal really ask for a response, or is it just sort of you know accidental or whatever? Uh, and then I think that we have a have a big debate that says the you know global debate that says, do we respond, and what do we say and uh,
0: like like the know, movies, I, I
1: don't think like the movies, and I don't think there's it's urgent. i mean if it's a, if it's six hundred years away, we probably can spend a few years in that argument. But the interesting thing is, if we do decide to communicate uh, with that society, it begins a, a very long-term dialogue. And I think dialogue is the right term because it, you know you would figure out what message to send, and then 1,200 years later, you might get an answer. But uh, you know, what are the big questions we want to ask, I mean, what what do they know about the universe? You know. The,
0: you know, the meaning of life we, we so are ma- we, we are making assumptions here because if it was 6000 um, if it was 600 light years away they will have progressed 600 light years worth of progress hopefully or anticipatory uh, progress in or, technology or not. <laughs> or not right they could have dis- disappeared as a civilization or whatever we want to name it If, in fact, they did progress, then our signal back to them or their diagnostic of receiving information from us might mean something different. It could mean, hey, there's someone there. Let's hop in a ship and go where we were using our human or our technological advances to be able to determine other planetary um, life's advances, which could be completely different in terms of speed, scale and capabilities.
1: Well, this is why this is such an exciting uh, question because it's uh, uh, you know th- this is really a, a timescale of, of human thought that that we haven't done much. I mean, that uh, I won't say we've never done it. I mean, the, the, the people that built cathedrals and pyramids and everything else had a, a, a you know an idea for communicating across the ages, at least for humans. Uh, so, it, I think it actually may be a very positive uh, you know, thought process to start thinking about timescales of many centuries.
0: It's, it's definitely a, a more challenging endeavor to, to think in that large scale and think the possibilities of uh, alien life are really being looked at from a serious scientific perspective. And
1: well, yep. right. and I, and I think that's the the. You know, I'm personally seeing a lot of, of of very serious and and positive discussion on on first of all how to how to search the, you know, for alien signals, uh, and second is beginning to have really positive discussion about, okay, what do you do if you find them
0: what are you hearing and what's what's the dialogue
1: well the dialogue is really you know there's uh there are you know conversations going on in the astronomical community the international astronomical union uh the international astronomical congress uh you know even the u.n committee on the Peaceful Uses of outer space has begun to kind of you know well maybe this is something that ought to be discussed i mean it's not an urgent issue but uh uh you know there's people at a growing number of universities that are kind of, you know, thinking about this, or, you know, how do, you know, how do we search in new ways? Uh, I mean, it's kind of the ultimate discovery of, of humanity that we're not alone. I mean, the, 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 the converse is maybe we really are alone. That's, you know, maybe even more interesting. The, but interesting. Uh,
0: well, <clears throat> if we took the we are not alone it would turn upside down uh, organizational structure ways in which people communicate because we have our own uh, on this planet ways and and, uh, tools that we use as humans it it will turn upside down religion uh, as to you know, we've had all these prophets on Earth and people believe that this is the place. Well, what if there's life simply and they don't know about any of the things that we've believed in? Uh, Those discussions must be extremely interesting because they're so philosophical.
1: Well, they are, but, you know, to to date and until we find something, you know, speculative, which they're fun. Uh, You know, I, I think that, you know, some of the most interesting You know, the science fiction literature and uh, concepts is really the ones that explore that. I mean, uh, you know, what I found very exciting recently was uh, the movie Arrival, uh, which was based on the short story, uh, the story of your life. And uh, the, uh, uh, you know, for those that haven't seen it, they should. But, I mean, it it really explores the concept of, of first contact with aliens and figuring out how to communicate with them. And then really looking at a different thought process. I mean, how does you know the you know different ways of communicating? And I think it uh, you know it, it, it turns out probably whatever the aliens are in that movie are, are you know much more like us than the real aliens we'll find uh, if we find them. But it's that it, this has always been the interesting concept. It's it's unlikely we're going to find beautiful bonds from Betelgeuse. But it's much more likely we're going to find some really alien intelligence, uh, and it may take us a while to even understand that it's inte- an intelligence.
0: Yeah, in, in without giving away the movie, I remember walking away saying, "While this seems to be advanced technology, it is still human-created technology." within our own scope and breadth and knowledge of how we might communicate, whereas or whereby meeting some thing, some entity from another space and time would most likely have something we'd never considered.
1: I think that's exactly the the point. That's why it's such an exciting thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those possible discoveries that, 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 Fundamentally changes things. I mean, it's sort of that there's the possibility that that whatever alien intelligence is there will open whole whole new uh, perspectives for us on, you know, the physics and reality of the universe. And it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, to to me, it may be the most exciting uh, possible thing. I mean, the the likelihood of finding an alien signal in the next few decades is, is low. Uh, you know, in discussions I've had, I'd say probably the most optimistic people think it's be one percent in the next decade. More realistically, one percent is huge. Yeah, one percent is amazingly realist- large. Those are, those are optimists. More realistic is you know, one part point you know, zero zero one, a hundred thousand or so. Or so, but that it's it's such an earth-shaking result. We certainly need to do some thinking about it and figure out how to do it.
0: Well, <clears throat> oh, oh, well, Pete, I've. We just met just uh, two months ago, something like that. And uh, asking you on the program, I think, was, uh, it was absolutely my pleasure. I, I, I've been smiling the whole time. You've challenged me to think in different ways uh, and to explore different concepts that would help us to move forward. So I thank you very much for willing, being willing to take the time. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm hoping that we're at the beginning of working together for quite some time.
1: Well, thank you. It's been, a,
0: been an enjoyable discussion. Uh, very quickly, for those of you who are listening, the Project Moon Hut has been, at, at this point, about three and a half years in production. And our focus is to create opportunities that are derived from collectively working together. <clears throat> God, I've got a cold today, it seems like, or something in my throat. And it's to establish sustainable life on the moon through accelerated space-based economy here and uh, on on Earth and within the moon, and we're calling that mirth. And the big target is, is if we ignite this, if we can ignite the human spirit, if we can get onto the moon, proof of concept, the Roger Bannister of space, where Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, uh, things happened after that, that if we can get into or on the moon, we would change our future forever. So there's a few things that you can do. One of them is you can go to Project Moon Hut, and you can sign up for our future space related database project that we're working on this would give you an opportunity to partake and know what's going on it's not we're going to spam you and send you information all the time we are actually working on a large project that you would be it would be helpful if you did you can participate by to going by going to facebook.com forward slash project moon hut and like us there and that will give you some more information or focus where our focus is which is mirth and then third you can go to twitter and if you go to at project moon hut you would connect with us also so once again i appreciate very much pete you taking the time i learned a lot and i i've got questions of my own that have been surfacing as we've been moving forward i just wanted to give time for us to finish on time so thank you certainly and so i'm david goldsmith thank you for listening